Hey there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. Due to this, you may experience varying audio levels. Thanks for understanding and thanks for listening. For today's episode, we're going to be doing something a little different. We're going to take a quick look at a couple of fun jobs. It's a working overtime job fair, if you will. First up is Sheila Hoffman, telling us all about the agonies and the ecstasies of life as a Tudor cook in the court of King Henry VIII. And next, we're going to talk with Jem Deducci about, I'm not kidding, royal butt wipers. Should be an interesting episode. Sheila, I am so happy to have you with us today. Thank you. So today, we're going to talk about something um, which is of great interest to me, uh, a time period that I love, the Tudor period, and a cook mm-hmm. in a great house during that, that time period. Could you just set the stage for us and tell us, you know, wh- what does it mean? What is the Tudor period? Well, the Tudor period, I mean, for the the historian wonks out there, we're talking about 1485 to 1603. And these are periods based on ruling families. So this is the the Tudor family, the family whose last name effectively was Tudor passed down from one father to another. But the most famous member of that family was, of course, Henry VIII, the man with six wives who kept like, (laughs) one one was divorced and then one died and then one was beheaded. I guess it was the second one was beheaded. But anyway, so six of them. And uh, he He's also very famous for um, kind of this being this big, heavy set man of great appetite. I mean, food is just one of those appetites, but that's, that's kind of our image one. of him in this contemporary world. I yeah. like how you put that, Sheila. Just one of his appetites was food. And that's perfect for what we're talking about today. We're talking about a cook. So was cooking in a great household in this time period a gendered occupation? And if so, which gender? Um, male, of oh, course, okay. <laughs> as all gendered things are. Um, now, that's not to say that there would have been no women associated with the kitchens, um, but historically, we understand it to have been dominated by men. And, you know, women cooks at the exact time of Henry VIII, if there were women cooks and how many there were, but um, for the most part, they wouldn't have been considered in the same professional level as, as men, though I imagine that they were brought in as specialists when, when it was needed. So, and, and it sounds like probably not in the, the concept of a sous chef with a, a, a kind of a, a, a career ladder to be climbed there. Exactly. We have historical records of um, how the Tudor kitchens were divided. They were divided into a number of departments, and each one was controlled by sergeants and teams of yeomen and grooms, etc. There were these gallopines who were like scullery maids, scullery, um, scullions, I guess I should say, not scullery maids. But um, so all of them, for the most part, were male. But was there ever a woman brought in to have a specialty cooking? Maybe. We don't know. Uh, Or maybe we do know, or a better historian uh, who's a specialist in it. Um, However, these kitchens were a little bit unruly and smelly and and gross, so (laughs) probably not a place where a woman of a certain ilk would have wanted to be found. Sure. I mean, the technology was probably pretty basic, huh? Oh, really? Yes. Basic, but also 
What's extraordinary about the Tudor kitchens, we're talking essentially at Hampton Court Palace, which is outside of London, um, on the river, on the River Thames, uh, they had some of the most advanced kitchens of the time, even though we would call, of course, the technology very basic. Right. <laughs> so. Well, can you tell us about any of those technologies? Well, one of them was, I mean, it's an ancient technology even then, but the spit roasting, oh, okay. right? Now that's, that goes back to the early days, right? Like as soon as man probably learned how to cook over fire, they figured out a way to roast a, a meal on a spit. However, um, the thing about the, the Hampton Court palaces is if you ever visit them, the furnaces are gigantic. You can stand in front of them and maybe six people to 10 people across widthwise, and then they're still taller than even tall people. And so you have, um, I'm going to say like five or six spits lined up on each of their furnaces and there are multiple furnaces. So it's, it's phenomenal. And the spits themselves are these enormous prongs of iron that you know, they're gigantic. And so the thing that was so spectacular about this was of course the number, the size, the size of each spit, the size of each you know, um, furnace or fire, the open fires the number of logs that had to be used, all this cost money that even if you could afford a stick over a fire, this was not the same kind of spit. Right. right. <laughs> roasted meat was something special because nobody had the time to sit there and turn, turn meat except for, you know, kings and aristocrats. Who had loads of, of sous chefs and, and, and worse to do that, that hot, dirty work. Um, it was hot. It was dirty. There's some wonderful tales about the clothing in the kitchen um, because, you know, working in the kitchens was such a sweaty and dirty job that eventually Henry VIII had to order scullions to stop going around nearly oh. naked, right? Um, because they're, they're working next You'd to You'd think the he would have liked seeing some of them if they were cute, right? Didn't he have an eye for the young ladies? This is medieval times. Like, at this point, aristocrats would have maybe had their heads rinsed in rose water before they sat down after a horse ride. <laughs> if they were lucky, meal. right? Or if, if their neighbor was lucky, let's be honest. <laughs> exactly. But nobody ever paid attention to the cook's hands. So how did one become a cook in a household such as this? It sounds like a really huge responsibility. It would have been, and um, you know, essentially, it would have been under the same kind of apprenticeship system as in medieval times, because we're we're coming out of medieval times at this point. I mean, like I said, we're in the like the late 1400s, early 1500s, so we're pretty far out of like 100 or 200 years, depending where you are in, in Europe, out of the medieval times, you know, into the Renaissance. Mm. If you were lucky enough to be apprenticed, it was usually still working your way up in the kitchen, so starting as a you know, a scullion or galloping and um, learning the tricks of the trade from the ground up. And in that respect, it's not that different from any other major kitchen, a, a catering kitchen, a cruise ship kitchen, where there's, you know, dozens and dozens and hundreds of people working towards the same goal. And you've got to have strict hierarchies in order to make it work. I love the names, scullion and galloping. Those are wonderful. And do, do you know what the oh, galloping did? It sounds like a horse to me. So they were basically like scrubbing the pots. Oh, that's not what it sounds like. Scullions would also like prep the foods, cut things and, and whatnot. So this was like, I mean, we use the term sous chef, but you know, this is so far removed from the sous chef. This is like the underling of the underling of the underling. 
Um, and in each kitchen, there were, you, I mean, you have to understand that uh, Henry VIII had expanded the kitchens um, early on uh, to basically to really to satisfy his appetites. I want to say, <laughs> I mean, that, that's a weird thing, but like he extended the kitchens of Hampton Court Palace from, I think it was something around 30 rooms to fill 55 The kitchens rooms. alone. Kitchen, like one room of those kitchens. I have been in those rooms. One room of it is roughly the size of the downstairs of my house. But there's enough of these kitchens that there are 200 members of the kitchen staff, brick hierarchies. Each department is divided. Each room is controlled by a sergeant. You know, they have to provide meals of sometimes up to 14 courses. <gasps> 14 courses. That was on a regular day. Was that for the entire household or just the elites of the household? Well, so there's, it's complicated because there's like 1,200 members of court, right? But at the same time, there's got to be like a, there, there are canteen type spaces, right? Where um, they have to feed. There are certain people who get, food as part of their payment, right? And that includes some of the aristocrats who are fed as part of their payment, really. Um, but also lower down in the, the ranks of all the people that work in the, in the, the palace. I mean, this is a massive palace. Um, there was a very complex system of who got fed and how many meals a day and what they got to eat, whether it was potage, which is like just basically soup that never comes off the uh -huh. fire, <laughs> or whether these 14 course elaborate meals. So, I, I mean, were some of the underlings given food quickly in kind of a cafeteria style gig, whereas the others, you know, would be served at table? I, I can just sort of trying to imagine that this would have, I mean, it sounds like cooking and serving was literally going to be an all day affair. Yeah, no, it really, it really, I think it had to have been, and there would have been shifts of people, I'm sure, but um, to, to organize this. Now, typically there were only two meals a day, okay. um, typically. Now, some of the aristocracy, and I believe Henry and some of his courtiers also ate a third meal, but kind of going back to the idea of coming back out of the medieval period, in the mid medieval period, two meals a day was typical. There was dinner and there was supper. And for lower class people, it was not, it was, it was kind of seen as presumptuous and ostentatious to eat a breakfast. Really? Um, yes. And if they, even if they needed it, then still only gruel. But the, you know, Henry VIII's palace would have been a little bit different where, you know, the courtiers could have, would have taken what they wanted, but, you know, I don't think the breakfast was a really like um, public mm -hmm. spectacle, like the dinner and the supper were, or the, the mid-meal, uh, midday meal and the end of the day meal. Okay. Wow. And so what might we expect to see on a typical menu? So I have a very cool quote that comes from around this time period. Um, his name is Thomas Starkey. He's an Oxford lecturer and he's writing in 1529. And he says, if they, that means like the nobles and many of their servants do not have at least 20 varied meat dishes at dinner and at supper, they consider themselves slighted. Slighted. So, <laughs> Yeah, but you, you also have to understand that even non-feast days, so Tuesday to you and me, right? Um, this is that the status of food was so important to Henry VIII's table because effectively we're talking about um, showing off the wealth and the status of Henry among yes. kings, not just as 
king in England. So the fact that he could produce not only numbers of meals, right, but to feed such um, numbers of people, these meals also on day-to-day -day Tuesdays, Wednesdays had to be extravagant. Oh. Um, so not only the numbers of meat, but sometimes things spiced with spices. First of all, spices in general were um, really reserved for the aristocrats because they were so expensive. They were always coming from exotic locales. Sugar was rare to see, but would have been eaten in some quantity, um, which came from Cyprus, right? It, um, spices from China, from Africa, from India. All these things made common appearance on the table of the Tudors because um, the king needed to prove how rich he was right? yeah. and how great So it's a spectacle like, like the jousts and the great tournaments for his courtiers. Yeah. Absolutely. Sometimes Henry would take his own meals in private or at least not in private, but, uh, you know, kind of on his throne as it were, but away from the spectacle of midday and um, end of the day meal, where his courtiers would be expected to have great etiquette, etiquette and, you know, to have manners, um, befitting spectacle as well. Yeah, it's really remarkable. You know, one of the, the cool things, there are so many things that occur that appear on the tables of the tutors, some of them just for feasts, like swans would have been reserved. Um, peacocks, now these are two beautiful birds in real life. They would have had their feathers plucked out. The bird would have been cooked and then all the feathers would have been put back in on display. Wow. Um, their beaks would have been gilded with um, gold foil. They would have used food dyes to make things like colored, all the colors of the rainbow just to make them well, people, when you got 30 dishes, right? so, you've got to get creative to, to, <laughs> to justify exactly. the next and one. <laughs> it was so much presentation, yeah. right? It was, it's, so you could, it's not like cooking for your table or cooking at the slop house for an army where you can just put it on the plate. Like this has to be presented. Yeah. Um, and the other thing was, is like, you might have 20 different types of meat. And if you go back to some of these historic manuals, you'll see like pike and halibut. Sometimes you even see dolphin, right? Um, wow. Beast meals might include whale meat, for God's sake. <laughs> Did they put but the whale back together? Was... That would take a lot of scullions <laughs> to carry in. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, so... Um, they 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 would put all these different things. Everyone was even the king was only supposed to take a very tiny morsel of each thing just to try it because etiquette dictated that. All right. One of the funniest things that you see on the the common well common not commoners table but the the Tudor dynasty table for a regular day is grilled beavers tails. Yeah, it sounds chewy. <laughs> I don't know why I say that. It just sounds chewy. <laughs> They classified beavers as fish at the time because they swam. Wow. And so, of course, these are things that could be used to um, eat meat on Fridays or, you know, eat ah, fish. <laughs> that's a good sleight of hand. Well, he was on his way out of the Catholic gig anyway. That There you go. He started with beaver tails. <laughs> And then it was the rest is history. Yeah, so it's it's just a, a fanciful, uh, kind of a farcical thing. Every single day they're, they're being served all these wonderful meals. And um, there are so many different like parts of the kitchen that were dedicated to storing things and making things. And it was incredible. The, the amount of food, the amount and the numbers of things they had to order in to store on top of like all the ale and wine. It is, it is, it, it, it's, and, it, and it I'm immense. just, you know, 
imagining organizational skills on an epic scale would have been required for an effective cook. So within this whole vast realm of like 55 rooms within the, the kitchen, this expanded kitchen of Henry VIII, there were many different types of rooms. So pantries and storerooms, um, there was the spicery, there was the bottlery, there was the buttery as well. And the buttery was for storing um, like inexpensive beverages such as ale, right? And beverages were later started stored in cellars um, and eventually it was, they were just renamed cellars. And then the bottlery was intended for storing and dispensing wines and other expensive provisions. And this was later called the, the privy cellar. But what's interesting about it is that this is where we get the word butler because it was originally the butler who was responsible for the buttery and the butlery. <laughs> it says what it is on the tin. That's right. I've ever since I was a kid, I thought like, what do you, a butler, is that someone who buttles? Was this a position of, of some, uh, could I use the word authority within the domestic staff pecking order? That's a very good question. I do know that the, the, the privy master cook who would have been the cook to Henry VIII himself um, would have prepared only the king's meals, but he would have also have been somewhat had some authority or at least a, uh, directing the people who would have planned all the other meals, right. right? All these different sergeants and rooms and whatnot and pages who were working in each of the different sub kitchens, right? Um, but for example, there were three master cooks um, for the meat alone. Uh, so there was one for the king, one for the queen, and one for the rest of the court. And um, so they had a little bit of authority in their own kitchens, but of course would have reported to higher authorities as well. And I believe that above even the kitchen cook, the privy cook, was the, the man who held the purse strings. So there was uh, there's a room at the far end of a series of kitchens in Hampton Court Palace, where there was basically just an accountant sitting. And I'm sure he had some famous name that I'm not remembering, like Grand Bursar of the Treasury or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Privy Council, His Majesty, I don't know. Um, but he was responsible for every last penny that was used to buy the massive amounts of food that were required to go in um, and then out of the kitchens, really. How much were cooks paid and, and how were they paid? So historically, payment is a little bit different than what we think of today. So if you've ever seen Downton Abbey, where the servants live in the mm -hmm. house, they eat with the house, they almost never leave, but maybe they have a day off, they probably get a, um, a small annual stipend as well. Um, so it's probably fairly close to that in the Tudor kitchens as well. The, the higher up you were as a cook, the more you would have been paid, but we're still not talking about a, light, a lot of money. Um, it was a common laborer in Tudor times made about seven pounds a year. I've always thought about like, this probably isn't a well-paying job, but at least you're always exactly. fed. And you're probably you always pretty well <laughs> too, it sounds like. But if you remember me telling you about the um, the clothes, right? How they had to like keep people from, from being half naked because the kitchens were so hot. They actually started to 
pay the cooks, actually the head cooks or the chief cooks extra in order to buy the lower cooks, the scullions, the, um, the gallopines, fresh and new clothes that were clean. So we have a record, for example, in 1541, uh, the chief cook was given um, 50 pounds, so 50 English pounds to buy clothes for 33 of the gallopines. The gallopines were the, like the lowest of the low for the next year because um, there were people who were complaining about the smell. <laughs> and so they were starting to say, and I, and I quote, that they needed to buy honest and whole garments without such uncleanness that would be an annoyance to all who pass. <laughs> it's so delicately put. It's very kind. Oh, wow. Here, put this on, stinker. Yeah. I guess they used to sleep naked by the fire sometimes, but... <laughs> well, if it was too hot otherwise, what are you going to do? Wow. Right? Right? Is there anything surprising that you have come up with about the job of a tutor cook? Um, other than cleanliness factors things have not changed really all that much. Um, and I mean to say that if you're producing 800 meals, right, there has to be strict hierarchy. There cannot be questioning of, you know, the people above you. There are people who have to account for how much food is purchased and when. It is an art and a science. And mm. I keep thinking of things like cruise ships where they have to do so many meals mm. for people and make them look nice and, you know, et cetera. And uh, they have to do it in, you know, confines and look nice. And so that's what's striking to me is how, maybe it's not how little has changed, but how close they were to a working formula already at that time. Well, it's true. And at the end of the day, we have technologies, we have um, supply chains that when they're not interrupted by situations such as we are experiencing with COVID-19, you know, it's arguably a lot easier to keep that system going, but it's still a complicated affair to create an elaborate dish and to get it with a number of other dishes all to the table for many, many guests, all hot at the same time, right? It's just, that's not going to change. Hot, but also beautiful and to make it look effortless. I mean, anyone yeah. who's ever had a dinner party, you don't want to be like wiping sweat from your brow in the kitchen and like throwing slop on a plate. You want it to look effortless and beautiful, um, like any performance. Well, and really. that's what it's all about in the Royal household, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think back to when I was much younger, I want to say 10 or 12 years old. And that was the first time I had read that in medieval times and in the times of the Tudors, like just, just shortly following this period, people never washed their dishes. And this is what I want to say. This is this a lesson that I have taken from it is that at that time when I heard that, I thought, that is disgusting. <laughs> and maybe as you hear this, like anybody who's listening to this would say, you never wash your pot. Oh my gosh, that is like, that is gross. But as I got to understand the period, I'm a medievalist um, by training. And so as I got to, to understand the period much better, what you realize is that in the midst of that idea, that grain of an idea who you think, Nobody can argue with the fact that not washing your pots, your cooking pots is disgusting. We forget that there's more information and that information is that those pots were used 24, seven, 365. 
they never came off the fire. It was um, primarily they would be uh, cooking that that potage, which is like a soup. In fact, that's the French word for soup. But usually it's just kitchen scraps, extra piece of meat, a piece of fat, throw it in the pot. It stays on the fire. You keep adding liquid, you keep adding scraps. It changes taste and flavor, you know, but it just keeps going and going and going. And whenever you're hungry, pull some out and pour it over bread and you're good to go. But I think it's really fascinating the difference between a 12 year old mentality of like, ooh, that's disgusting. I don't want to know anymore. And as we find out more about the simplest little, I mean, what we call a fact, right? That we can discern much more and extrapolate meaning and understanding from just doing a little bit of digging. And I guess the reason I want to say that is because it's so easy to look historically and it's so easy to look nowadays with this idea of like, that's gross. I hate that. That's not okay. That's bad. And we usually like to cut things off at that point instead of digging a little bit deeper and saying, hmm, I want to understand this better. Yeah. I love that. I love that attitude. Um, I mean, it, it, it also, it, it's a really, frankly, a very elegant solution to two problems. It, negates your sort of just obviates the need to wash your pots but it also services this endless need to feed this huge household so sheila would you have made a good tutor cook <laughs> well i'm female so i may have needed to change change gender and um i th i think I was always attracted to this idea. I mean, because no, I, there are very few historians in like Tudor food. I mean, they're out there and these people do wonderful jobs. What brings me to it is self-interest and the fact that I love to cook um, and I love historic cooking. And so I like to think that I would fit right into this um, and be very good at it. But I also know that historically I would have been, even if I had been a man, like been put into a very specific job that I would have done day in, day out, and most likely not have advanced past that same darn thing every single day of my life. <laughs> Might have wrung some of the joy out of it, I hate to say. So, but that being said, in medieval times, the number of people who could claim to have like plenty of food, plenty of warmth, and have your clothes paid for. <laughs> Even if they were covered in goose grease all the time, that's okay. <laughs> right, that's right. So I think that I would have made a very good tutor cook. And I would have loved trying many of the things on the table, even if I was sneaking it from the pot, getting my hand, <laughs> maybe not the whale meat or the doves or something, but. <laughs> Love it. Just part of, of many of the things that they have given us kind of like fed down to us over the ages. I mean, the pantries and larders, right? That was an, a word my grandmother used to use. And a spicery. I like we, spicery. We know we're That's very, very, very elegant sounding. Like spice cabinet or spice, I don't know. It's like a spice cabinet, right? Spice or spice rack. rack. That, that doesn't what, have the same melodious ring of spicery. That's right. I'm going to leave this interview and go relabel my spice rack as the spicery. And probably the pantry is the larder. And maybe the refrigerator is the buttery. <laughs> well, I'm going to go stock my wine cellar and call it the bottlery. That's right. That's if that's right. It, liquor sales are up, I might as well, right? It's the time of coronavirus drinking at home. <laughs> maybe I'll go out and hunt me a, a peacock or two. And now for something a little more earthy, but just as intriguing. 
We spoke with Jem a few weeks back about Silk Road traders during the time of the Crusades. And now we're going to speak with him about the surprisingly coveted task, which some people actually had in the past, of wiping the rear end of the monarch after he had done his business. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Um, so there is a, a, an amusing and uh, very much forgotten role called Groom of the Stool. And what this is, was basically one of the most coveted positions in court in, in Europe, particularly it's uh, related that title to the Tudor era in, in England, of it is what it sounds like. It was somebody who stood by the king <laughs> while they uh, attended to their business, did a number two. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm being as euphemistic as I possibly can. And while this sounds like um, in the background, while we've been recording this, it's like somebody's referred to it as the royal butt wiper. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that, that's what it was. And if that sounds like one of the worst jobs ever, what you have to, of course, think about is you are going to see the ruler of the land. A king is a divine ruler. And to have one-on-one -on -one time with them everybody would kill for. It, it, it's been my experience. It's like, what is the definition of power? Because money is not the same thing as power. And I think more than anything else, access is power. If you can get through to anybody, if you've got somebody like Jeff Bezos's mobile number, you have power. You know, if you can speak to the head of the United Nations, you have power. And so therefore have this very intimate quality time with the king, people were desperate to be groom of the stool. Now that's the official Tudor title. It seemed to have existed before that, and it certainly existed in one form or another in other countries as well. And it is worth remembering that it was uh, Sir John Harrington uh, at the time of Queen Elizabeth I, so she was the last Tudor monarch, um, he invented the very first flushable toilet, and he actually installed a flushable toilet in Queen, one of Queen Elizabeth's palaces, but she found it too loud and annoying, so she kept with the whole bucket system of, of uh, doing your business. And presumably, well, Queen Elizabeth, uh, as a woman, would not have had a groom. She would have had a groomess or waiting woman of the stool. But she would have had a, a lady to help her you know, wipe her derriere. A, a, a real proper lady. How would one land the job of groom of the stool? I mean, because by example, you know, Queen Elizabeth's ladies were just that. They were highborn themselves, uh, certainly not at the level of the queen, but what kind of person would merit the job of the groom of the stool? And I, I, I sort of think about what you were saying about the importance of access and, and um, you know, intimate knowledge on many levels. You know, would it have been in the king's interest to have somebody uh, very common who would not aspire to, to do things that one would wish he would not with information he might gain? Or were they also gentle born? Now, now you see, does, to the modern listener, it makes complete sense. Well, of course, if they're dealing with, you know, number twos, they're probably some lowly peasant. But no, it was a highly sought after role. It would have been a close personal friend to the monarch. They would have been very high status. This is the sort of thing that they would have told all their friends about. It's like, you won't believe the, the gig <laughs> I've got. You know, I'm the royal butt wiper, to, to use Aidan's term. Um, and then, of course, everyone so, would so, say, oh, my gosh, please ask him for this. My Aunt Susie is really ill and down. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. 
um, uh, because pl indoor plumbing just wasn't a thing till kind of like the 19th century, we know for the fact that there were several French kings at Versailles Palace. Versailles is a huge, huge palace that people would just sort of basically go behind a curtain and just do it next to the window. Um, and so there were complaints from various <laughs> kings. Yeah, 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 basically complaints. And, and that's also one of the advantages of women having these big skirts that you could, I mean, oh. uh, even women in the, in the, um, in the fields, because basically if you just sit down and do either a number one or number two ladies, you've got the skirt acts, acts like a little, little tent for you, little modesty uh, thing for you. So that's kind of the, the reason for sort of like larger skirts on, on women so yeah we just can't escape the yeah we, we all have to do it at some point so so and 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 yeah i mean you are of course catching the the monarch in a very vulnerable place now this was not the time of groom of the stool but there's um in the year 1016 so this is in the late anglo-saxon era there was a king of uh, of england um, yes king of england called edmund ironside he's a remarkable guy he fought about five different battles against the vikings all in one year and you're sitting there going wow he's got a cool name and he was a warrior why don't we know more about him because he only ruled for that one year and he was killed while he was doing his business into a slit trench and there was a viking assassin underneath him and stabbed him in the bottom with a sword. That's so, a low blow. So it does show you how potential it was. And also sort of linking this sort of thing with when we talked about the, the trade. Um, so uh, King Edward I, um, he was a prince and went on crusade. And he, was, uh, he allowed a trader to meet him in his private quarters. Now, if you meet a royal, uh, on the battlefield, they're going to be dripping in armor. And Edward was a formidable fighter. But in his private quarters, he has no weapons on him. He has no armor on him. And this trader was an actual assassin. The term assassin is a genuine job that happened in the Middle Ages. There was a cult called the Hashashin, which it sort of translates to where, where we get the word assassin from. And they, their, their secret weapon or their weapon of choice was a poison dagger. So this man lunged at Prince Edward and actually cut him with the poison dagger. And the two of them were rolling around in, the, in this prince's private bed chambers and in the end and i love this fact edward killed the man with a stool beat him to death with a wooden the, the kind stool. that you sit on yes okay yeah. <laughs> just... this is hardcore yeah we're not back to groom of the stool we're back to seats actual wooden seats so so i mean but that shows you uh, and he very nearly died uh, he was nursed back to health he ended up becoming king of england um but that that shows you how vulnerable that you know the, these people are normal human beings and if they're in that situation they have to be with somebody who they really really trust or something can go wrong and i i i, I if you like um sort of i want to leave this sort of passing thought with you this is such an intimate time for all of us it's so intimate that that ceramic thing that you have in your bathroom doesn't have a name. Every single thing you call it is a euphemism. You know, people talk about the WC, the water closet. Well, it's not a closet full of water. Uh, we call it a toilet, but toilette means, you know, it's a washing process in France, okay? And you certainly don't wash with it. You know, the Americans, I love the way that in America, you, you find the word toilet is a bit crude, a bit crass in Britain, it's just what we call it. But you know, you keep going to the bathroom. Well, in some British houses, the toilet's in a separate room to the bathroom. So you are really out of luck. Um, you asked to go to the bathroom. So, so yeah, that little ceramic thing that we all spend time sitting on is so sort of awkward and naughty 
in the English language, we do not have a specific name for it. It's always a little reference to something else that isn't quite as gross and naughty. Oh, how we wish to escape our base animal nature. So the groom of the stool was one of the most sought after jobs in Tudor England, which involved watching the king straining vigorously over a bucket. Some jobs look great on paper. Some jobs sound terrible, no matter how you try to spin it in your mind. But as I think our discussions today have showed us, there's something good to be found in any task, however strange it might sound at first. Thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at WorkingOTSeries. Thanks for listening and remember to like and subscribe.